I'm sorry. We'll take our seats and I'll begin uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you that we can gather together, learn more about your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. And uh, we thank you for what your son did for us, that we could escape this everlasting wrath. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to think well upon your text, that we would understand the joy that is set before us and the great marvelous salvation that you have effected on our behalf so that we won't ever have to endure the everlasting wrath, the everlasting hell that you allude to in the book of Revelation. Help us to think well in your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear ones, last time that we had left off, remember we were talking about hell is everlasting. I was joking to Craig here in the Amundsen's that you can tell we haven't gone seeker sensitive because the first slide you see as you come in the door is hell is everlasting, not exactly the seeker sensitive topic. But recall when we were in Revelation 14, 9 through 12, that's what we were covering this time, we saw the everlasting judgment comes upon those who give allegiance to Antichrist in the next PowerPoint that I hope we get into today, I'll show you that everlasting rest, Sabbath rest, comes upon those who have allegiance to Christ. So again, there's the choice. Are we going to give our allegiance to Antichrist or to Christ through faith and escape this eternal wrath? Now, I showed you some heretics, one in particular, Rob Bell, who denies that hell is everlasting. And so I was showing you both evidence from the Old and the New Testament that just clearly shows us that hell is everlasting. It's very interesting in Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, he tries to claim that this doctrine of eternal hell really isn't taught in Scripture. And he just simply neglects clear verses that do teach it. So that's what I left off last time. Daniel 9, or excuse me, Daniel 12, 2. Notice the contrast between everlasting life and everlasting contempt. What we did is we said, look, if we're going to deny everlasting contempt, everlasting judgment, well, then wouldn't we have to, because of this contrast, deny that life is everlasting? They both go together. And again, the Bible is binary. It's either or. In our postmodern world, there is a rejection of either or. In fact, when I went to seminary, there was a postmodern theologian. I use the term theologian loosely. Bob debated him. His name is Doug Paget. The first words that I heard when I went to that seminary is, we have to stop binary reductionism now and all of the students stood there and said yes stop binary reductionism now they had no idea what it meant but as I was sitting there I thought binary is either or and he's saying that we don't want to reduce things to either or and I thought well either your landing gear is down or it's up right you're either a sheep or a goat you go to either heaven or hell and then my final one was you either like Barry Manilow or you don't there's no in-betweens right so the life, life, of course, is filled with binary choices, and the Bible certainly replete with them. And so we see that right here. It's either everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Now, I also wanted to show you 2 Thessalonians 1. Now, there's three points I want to make from this text. Let me lead you through it. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, Paul says this. He says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, stop there. Does everyone see the term affliction? That comes from the Greek term thalipsis, which is what we render usually tribulation. So notice what Paul is saying to the Christians at Thessalonica. He's talking about a reversal. That in this world, dominated by the unregenerate, they are going to afflict the people of God, those who belong to Christ, in thalipsis, affliction, tribulation. But there's a time that's coming, and this is what we've we've been reading about In the book of Revelation, in the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, there's a reversal where the enemies of God are going to receive the affliction and the people of God are going to be saved. Okay? So here's why I say that. You'll hear many times people say, well, isn't it true that we go through tribulation in this world? In fact, Paul says in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. That's true. But that is a short-lived and temporary affliction or tribulation. But the affliction or tribulation that comes in the last seven years of Daniel is the affliction. It's the one that ends up leading to eternal wrath. And that's why Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial, the tribulation that comes upon the whole world 
to test those who dwell upon the earth. So I want you to see right there in verse 6, there's a reversal. You and I, the people of God, go through affliction now, but in the 70th week of Daniel, the enemies of God will be afflicted. Continuing on in verse 7, he says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, there's his parousia, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me stop there. Notice in verse 8, those who are going to receive the retribution of God are those who do not obey the gospel. Remember Bob in his sermon last week mentioned John 6, 29. The Jews come up to Jesus. They say, what work must we do that we would do the work of God? What was the work that they were to do? Believe in the one whom the Father has sent. So the reason I'm showing you this is I want you to realize we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is the first obedience to the gospel. And so not only can we say we must believe in the gospel, you can also say it as Paul did here, that the gospel is something that must be obeyed. How do we obey it? By belief. That's the idea. Okay, so notice the interchangeability there. Now, verse 9 Again, talking about the enemies of God, he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, notice the term eternal destruction. Eternal aeonion just simply means that it's everlasting. I like the term everlasting better than eternal because technically eternal means there was no beginning or no end. Okay, Yahweh, God himself, is the only one that's eternal because he never had a beginning and he'll never have an end. He's non-contingent being. But what's really being referred to here is that when the wrath of God comes, there will be no end to it. So it's everlasting. There's a beginning to it, but there's no end. It's everlasting, and that's what's being referred to here. Now, what's interesting is notice if it's everlasting destruction, no one can get away with trying to claim that this destruction is a form of annihilation That is, you cease to exist. Do you know that there are some theologians who claim that what is before the unregenerate isn't everlasting torment, but ceasing to exist or annihilation? Well, this would be a non sequitur to say annihilation here because it's everlasting. If you cease to exist, that's not everlasting. Well, it's everlasting, you'd cease to exist, but it's not everlasting destruction. So think of destruction in the sense of a car accident. If your car is destroyed in an accident, does it cease to exist? No. It's destroyed. In the same way, what's being depicted here for the unregenerate is that they will have a resurrected body in which they will be tormented, as we learned in Revelation 14, in the lake of fire in an everlasting way. So you and I have a resurrected body where we're going to enjoy God and his blessing, his life, his favor forever and ever. The unregenerate are going to have a resurrected body for the strict purpose of incurring the wrath of God in an everlasting way. Now, there's a question that, that Norm had asked last week that I thought was very good, and I wanted to spend a little bit more time on it. And the question that Norm had asked last week was, in this section in Revelation, we had seen the description of hell as a place of fire and brimstone. And Norm astutely asked the question, well, okay, It seems like hell is described as a place of fire, and with fire, of course, would come light. But in other places, for example, in Matthew 8, 12, uh, Matthew 25, 30, Jesus describes the place of torment as a place of outer darkness. So how can you have darkness with the everlasting fire? And it's a very good question, and here, I think, is the resolution. When Jesus is describing the outer darkness, he's not talking about physical light versus darkness through our eyes, but rather the darkness of being under the gloom of the wrath of God versus experiencing the light of his favor and privilege of eternal life. Now, let me give you an example of this. Um, you, can, you can turn your Bibles here if you want. I'll just make a quick reference to it. Joel chapter 2. That passage came to my mind because remember, oftentimes the prophet Joel will say, look, you rascals, you Israelites, The day of the Lord isn't going to be light for you. It's going to be darkness, he says. In fact, listen to what he says. This is Joel 2, the second part of verse 1 into verse 2. He says, For the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. Now, darkness and gloom I would take together. 
a synonymous relationship. In other words, the darkness is gloom. So when Jesus talks about being in the outer darkness, he's not making necessarily a phenomenological remark the way things appear, but the idea of being away from the presence of God in his salvation. Are you with me? Um, R.T. France says it this way. He says, quote, this is a scholar in the book of Matthew. He's quoting on the outer darkness in Matthew. He says, quote, outer darkness or darkness on the outside may be intended to picture the bright lights of the banquet, that is the messianic banquet, visible to those who are excluded. And he gives another reference. He says, in Luke 13, 28, you see the language you will see. So the idea then is the messianic banquet, all those who are under the gloom of God's wrath, they're going to be looking at the messianic banquet from afar. And think about what it's like when you have a banquet at your own home, a dinner at Thanksgiving, the lights are on, the turkey smells so good, all your friends and relatives are around. But can you imagine being excluded from that? That's being under the gloom of God's darkness. Yeah, Bob. That is precisely why what was going on in Corinth was so evil in Paul's eyes. Very good point. In 1 Corinthians 11, they were having their love feast, and the rich Christians who had a big house with an atrium, and they were having their own version, okay? The poor Christians were sitting out having something less, Right. They could just look in. They're excluded. They were excluded. So Paul rebuked them in very strong terms. Right. Because that's giving the picture that if you're a poor Christian, it's like being in hell. Wow. You're on the outside looking in. That's not right. Because everybody that is the redeemed is part of the banquet. And he said... If you do that, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. Wow. It's not those people out there that are going to be excluded. You will be if you don't repent. Wow. And so this banquet is something so desirable in the Jewish mind that to be excluded would would be a horrible thing. And so the Lord's Supper has to be uh, available and the benefits of it have to be for every Christian Amen. or we're sending a horrible message. Wow. Great application. Do and I Bob, get coffee? You get free coffee. <laughs> Very good. And Bob, so this is why you and I have labored the point. I don't know how many messages we've given on it now, but out of first Corinthians 11, is everyone aware in first Corinthians 11 that Paul gives the admonition, examine yourself. And a lot of Christians have falsely taken the idea of examine yourself prior to taking the Lord's Supper as to mean you have to determine if you're good enough for the cup. But when you look at what Paul is saying, it's exactly what Bob is talking about. What was happening is they weren't examining themselves, realizing that they were excluding other people within the body. That's why you look at the remedy in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's remedy, when he says examine yourself, He says, wait for one another. He actually gives you a therefore. Therefore, wait for one another. Why? Because the whole body of Christ, as Bob has been saying, all those who are believers in Jesus should be accepted at the table. There should be no one on the outside looking in. As Bob rightly astutely pointed out, that's a picture of being in hell. And think about what Bob's been teaching us in 1 John. What's one of the indicators that you belong to God? That you have a love of the brethren. Well, what kind of love of the brethren would you have if you exclude brothers and sisters from the table that Christ purchased them for? Well, that's not loving at all. Okay, so it's an indication of an unregenerate heart. And that's why Bob was pointing out, that's why the damnation belongs on those who are doing the excluding. Very ironic, isn't it? Now, one other thing I want to point out is notice in verse 9, the underlying portion. Here, very interestingly, it says that those who are the enemies of God who receive the eternal destruction... Notice it happens away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. Okay, now, why is that interesting? Because in Revelation 14.10, we saw those under eternal torment are in the presence of the Lord. Well, here it says that they're away from the presence of the Lord. And obviously, according to the law of non-contradiction, you can't be in the presence of the Lord and not in the presence of the Lord at the same time in the same relationship. Let me show you what I mean. 
let's put it up there, Revelation 14.10, talking about the unbelievers, those who give allegiance to Antichrist. It says, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? It's Jesus. It's the Lord. Now, let's contrast that with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where it just said these, the unregenerate, unbelievers will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And again, we seem to have a contradiction. I would call this a paradox. Revelation 14.10, the unregenerate are in the presence of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they're away from the presence. Now, notice I call this a paradox. What is the difference between a paradox and a true contradiction? Well, a paradox is an apparent contradiction. But upon closer scrutiny, you realize there's no contradiction at all. A true contradiction is a nonsensical statement, like saying you have a round square. Okay, well, by definition of something square, it can't be round. It's, there's no way to reconcile that. Okay? So remember, the law of non-contradiction says if A, then not non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. So what we do is knowing that there's no contradiction in Scripture, we must understand that there's a different sense in which the enemies of God will be in his presence, and there's a different sense in which they won't be in his presence. Are you with me? Think of it this way. The issue here isn't a spatial issue. The issue is a relational issue. Now, here's why I say that. Psalm 139, David talks about the omnipresence of God. What does the omnipresence of God mean? It means that God is everywhere. It doesn't mean that he's in everything. That's pantheism. But he is everywhere. David says, O Lord, where could we flee from your spirit? Where could we flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I descend and make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There's nowhere that God isn't. Okay? So when we realize that, we have to realize that God is present everywhere, even in hell. So the difference between being in the presence of the Lamb and not being in the presence of the Lamb in these two texts is those who are in the presence of the Lamb under his torment, they only receive God's wrath, his unmitigated fury. That's Revelation 14.10. But those who are away from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they never receive the kindness, the face of God, or he gives them his favor. Okay, now, what I want to do is I'm actually going to pull up my laser pointer. This is highly dangerous. I recommend that no one tries to do this. I'm a trained professional. <laughs> no, I say that because I usually turn my computer off after I try to get rid of my pen, so I'm just talking about my own incompetence. Notice the presence here. The term in Greek is... An... <laughs> oh, <laughs> we have backup. Good. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Good, good, very good. I love that. <laughs> very good. Now, does everyone notice the term presence there in, in the Revelation 14.10 passage? The term there is enopion. Now, enopion can mean face, but generically it typically just means in front of or in the presence of. Now, contrast that with what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 uses. The Greek term there is prosopon. Write that down. I think it's an important term. Prosopon, it literally means face. It doesn't mean just merely in the presence of. It means before the face of. Are you with me? Uh, Prosopone would be, I'm trying to do it in English here, P-R-O-S-P-O-N. Wait, did I miss? Oh, I'm sorry, I missed another O. Pros-O-Pone. So there's another O I missed before the final P. Does that make sense? Prosopone. Yeah. Okay. So that literally means before the face. Now, how many were here, let me get rid of my pointer here, how many were here a few months ago when I did a message on grace alone? Many of you were. Remember I defined grace. I wanted to make sure that we understood what grace was. And I defined grace to mean it's where God gives us his unmerited favor. The Hebrew verb kanan for grace in the Old Testament was derived from an Akkadian term that was used 
to talk about how a subject in a kingdom would have the unmerited favor of the king. So if you had the unmerited favor of a king, if you lived in the ancient Near East, the king would give you his face. Okay, It's like he condescended himself that you would actually be able to see him was being given unmerited favor. Why? Because most of the people in the ancient Near East believed that their kings ruled by divine right. So this concept is really used in the Bible. When you and I are given God's grace, his unmerited favor, we are beholding the face, as it were, of the king of kings. Yeah, Dana. This ties back to the ironic blessing, may his face shine upon you. Exactly. I've got, in fact, I've got it right on this very slide. Thank you. More free coffee, Dana. <laughs> You're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, Eric. And, you know, to me, this also, you know, some of us who go out and do evangelism, there's a whole world out there of people that say, oh, we've got a contradiction here, and, and they'll confront you with this. This is where we need to understand and rightly divide the Word of God. And that means getting to the Greek and the Hebrew, even though we're not Greek and Hebrew scholars, but we need to, we need to understand this stuff because we will run into people, every one of us, just at yeah. random, and we need to be able to explain this kind of thing. It's important. Amen. Thank you. Yes, there are no contradictions in Scripture. And so where we see an apparent one, a paradox, we know it's resolvable. And what's interesting is when we see a paradox, it actually forces us to do even greater study, to say, I know this is resolvable, and lo and behold. Now, let me show evidence that Dana alluded to. Notice here in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, this is the Aaronic benediction that Yahweh commanded Moses to tell Aaron to give to the people of Israel. Listen to what he was to tell them. Numbers 6, 24, Yahweh, remember the Lord in all caps is Yahweh, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now, let me get my laser pointer out again. Notice when Yahweh makes his face shine upon you, by definition, you have his grace, his unmerited favor. That's what's called in Hebrew synonymous parallelism. In other words, it's not that shining, his face shining upon you is different than his being gracious to you. It's that there are two ways of saying the same thing. When God's face shines upon you, he's being gracious to you. You have his favor. It's a relational issue, not a spatial issue. Why? Because God is everywhere. All right? Now, notice the second phrase here in verse 26. Yahweh lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Those are synonymous. In fact, notice the term countenance. That is the Hebrew term paneh, which is face. It's identical to the face here. So literally you could say, Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace. If God's face is shining upon you, you have his favor, you have his blessing, you have his salvation, you have eternal life, you have resurrection, you have a glorious kingdom, you have it all. But if he hides his face from you, even though you're in his presence, all you get is his unmitigated fury. And not just the fury of some localized president or dictator on earth, but the wrath of the Holy One of Israel. Now, notice what he says in Psalm 80, verse 3. He says, O God, I believe this is David, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. What's the result of God's face shining upon you, giving you grace and his peace? You're saved. It's salvation. Now, let's take that idea of God's face, shining on you and giving you favor and therefore salvation. Let's go backwards for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, the enemies of God are away from the face of Yahweh. Well, if you're away from the face of Yahweh, you don't have his grace, you don't have his peace, you don't have his favor, you don't have his salvation, you don't have his blessing. Okay, now let me go forward again. Notice, oops, notice what God says in Deuteronomy 31.18. These are to the enemies of him. This is given to the Israelites who end up engaged in unbelief and idolatry. He says, but surely I will hide my face in that day because all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. If God hides his face, you only have his wrath. So that's how we resolve, I believe, Revelation 14.10, which says that they will, the enemies of God will be in the presence of the Lord. Versus 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they won't be in the presence of the Lord. The enemies of God will be in the presence of the Lord because he's omnipresent in the sense that they only get his unmitigated fury. 
and wrath. But they won't be in the presence of the Lord in the sense where they receive His face, His unmerited favor, His salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, Bob has a great story. And what I want to leave you with is, oh, before, I, in fact, maybe you have a different comment. Well, oh. I would just quickly want to say yeah. this. I, I finished writing an article called Two Domain Theology. Yeah, very good. And I think it's going to be important, but we'll find out. Um, I've been preaching on these things here. It comes somewhat from these sermons on First John, where I put slides up, either or. Of course, emergence says there's no either or. Exactly. Everything evolves into some. One. This is the Hegelian synthesis. Well, in two-domain theology, which I believe the Bible portrays in many places, when someone is converted, they go from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan to God, uh, Acts 26, 18, and they have forgiveness of sins. Amen. But I want us to think about something in regard to what Eric was just saying. The way God runs his universe is that now, before the end of the age, the, the wheat and the tares coexist in the world. And God allows that and does that. And that what we have now is the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John five nineteen. But the doctrine of common grace is a biblical idea. Okay. Yeah, so even if you're lost right now and you live in this world, you are not away in the sense that you will be. Right. Do you see what I mean? Because if you look at that parable of Lazarus and the rich man, there's a chasm. Right now there isn't. So whatever general benefits there are, the rain, the yeah. grass grows, flowers bloom, the enjoyment of the beauty of creation, the presence of civil law that restrains evil, yeah, Romans yeah. 13. There are many things right now that are benefiting everybody on the earth, whether they're a Christian or not. And that when it's talking about away from the presence, what Eric's talking about is that if you look at the parable of the tares, Jesus interpreted it. By the way, if Jesus interprets a parable, that's the right interpretation. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> it's amazing how many people get that one wrong. But anyhow, uh, at the end of the age, they're separated out. Yeah, so if you're lost now, you're in darkness. And if you repent, you'll come into the light if you Amen. believe the gospel. Then, when the separation happens eternally, no civil law, no enjoyment of the creation, no light of any kind, no rubbing shoulders with people that treat you better than you deserve, right. and no mitigation of evil there is just utter eternal separation yeah so wow. people don't appreciate how good they have it now and what you notice is if any light does show up they like it. let's uh not kill unborn babies right what happens to the people in darkness they get they start beating on people and hitting them with sticks and throwing bricks through windows and lighting fire. They so hate the light that if any of it shows up, they try to fight it. Right. That's persecution. Right. But they don't realize that the, all the light that God allows there to be, they're benefiting from Amen. temporarily, even though they hate it. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Yeah, common grace yeah. is a biblical concept. Right. Now, what's interesting is you pointed out when the day comes, the day of wrath, all they're going to experience is not this common grace, talking about the unregenerate. There'll be none. There's going to be none. They're going to experience torment. And I want to just end, and I'm going to have you give your story too, Bob, because I think it's such a good one. I want to leave you with some words from Jonathan Edwards, because I think in his description in the, the sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's one of the most famous sermons ever preached in America. 
he very well gives a description of what it must be like to always receive only God's unmitigated fury and wrath. Listen to what he says. It's very descriptive, and I think it's apropos here. He says this. He says, quote, Consider this, that you are here present, that yet remain in the unregenerate state. That is, you're an unbeliever. He says, Consider that God will execute the fierceness of his anger implies that he will inflict wrath without any pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment to be so vastly disproportioned to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion on you. He will not forbear the executions of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There will be no moderation or mercy, nor will God then at all stay his rough wind. He will have no regard to your welfare nor will he be careful lest you should suffer too much. That's what it's like to be in the presence of the Lamb, where you all you receive is his unmitigated fury. But you and I will be in his presence before his face, where we receive his blessing and eternal life. Dear ones, being saved from the wrath of God, having your sins forgiven, is the whole enchilada. If your sins have been forgiven, you have the world by its tail. Now, what's interesting is when Bob and I were at Bethel, Bob went there before I did, being saved from the wrath of God was not deemed relevant. Bob, you have a great story that talks about this when you guys were talking about Paul Tillich, the new Orthodox theologian. Why don't you explain that story? Well, I was in a theology class, and we were learning different versions of theology that have risen in the 20th century. And one of the theologians was Paul Tillich, who was famous, and he is most famous um, idea was called correlation. That's what he called it, correlation. And what that idea was that our theology, rather than reflecting what theology has always discussed, should be determined by the questions people are asking. Okay? What they deem to be relevant. Yeah. In other words, why teach a theology, like, let's say we're talking about the Trinity or whatever we, if people don't see it as relevant to their lives. And so then, that, so people were jumping in and talking about that. And I sat there and thought, what are we missing here? This isn't right. So I put my hand up and they called on me. And I said, well, if what we believe is true as evangelicals, such as that God created the world out of nothing and that Jesus is truly man and truly God and the, he did die for sins and was raised and there is a blood atonement and there's a literal heaven and a literal hell and that we need to repent and believe the gospel if we're going to go to heaven. If these things are true then by definition they have to be relevant to all people exactly. whether they believe them or not. Exactly. How can we say the doctrine of hell is irrelevant Unless people, that's what they want to hear about. I said that in class because it was so obvious to yeah. me. And the place, it was stunned. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> it's like right. nobody had thought of that. Yeah. Okay. There's certain things that ontologically, as an order of being, are relevant to all human beings. Just because we're humans. And the Bible addresses those things. Exactly. And salvation, forgiveness of sins, and such are always relevant. Well, Tillich, back in the early 20th century, really was laying the foundation for what became the Where's seeker the movement, yeah. the seeker-sensitive church. And we've seen the bad fruit of that just go on yeah. and on and on. And um, that was in, like, 1994 or whatever when that happened in class. Well, I didn't know that I'd spend the rest of my life fighting this battle, but I have been. Yeah, amen. Including debating people like this Doug Paget. Well said. So, Bob, you rightly pointed out to a, a class at Bethel Seminary that being saved from the wrath of God is relevant. Amen. When you go out into the world, people aren't going to see that. They're not going to understand that being saved from the wrath of God is the most relevant issue. Why is it the most relevant issue? Because it goes on to eternity. Someone may have a problem with a wife, or with a job, or with a flat tire. But how long does that last? 
Well, contrast that with eternity. How long is eternity and to be under the unmitigated fury of the wrath of God? Well, what's more important? That's why if you are not hearing in your churches, I'm speaking to those who are listening, about being saved from the wrath of God and having forgiveness of sins, you should flee from that church. That's the most relevant issue that everyone needs to hear about. Now, as I transition into our next PowerPoint here, thank you, Bob, for that great story, very good illustration of the issues. Now what's interesting is we go into Revelation 14, 13, we just look at how those who are in allegiance to Antichrist are going to have eternal wrath. Now we're going to see that those who are in allegiance to Christ are going to have eternal rest, true Sabbath rest. Are you with me? So we're going to see a contrast now. Now let's look at what John says. Revelation 14, 13, he says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now, notice in the beginning here in verse 13, John says that he heard a voice from heaven. Well, what's interesting is when we unpack that in earlier passages, Revelation 10.4, Revelation 10.8, Revelation 11.12, this voice from heaven is usually the divine voice. It's the voice of God. And the reason why it's significant that God's voice is saying this from heaven is it shows the concern that he has for his people. Okay, now listen to what he says. He has John write this. So God, again, is the source of revelation. He says, write, there's a command. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Does everyone see that in red? Blessed is an adjective that describes the state that properly belongs to believers in Jesus Christ. To be blessed does not determine, is not determined, by how you feel if you belong to Jesus by faith. It's not determined by your circumstances in this world. You can be in a gulag having the worst day you've ever had, but if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because you have salvation. You've been saved from everlasting wrath. Are you with me? So that's the blessedness that's being referred to. Now, we just saw that those who are unregenerate, are going to receive eternal torment. And so what that means is no matter how swimmingly it seems that life goes for the unregenerate, no matter how well the unregenerate seem to thrive in this world, you have to realize that those circumstances don't indicate that they're blessed because outside of Christ, the moment they die or the moment the Lord returns, whichever occurs first, they'll be under the wrath of God and they're not blessed. So that's the contrast that we have to see. Now, notice here when it says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. How many times have you seen in your Bibles the blessedness of being in Christ, in the Lord, in God? What the scriptures do, and this is what Bob has written in his article about, is they describe two spheres. You're either in the world with Satan or you're in Christ, and therefore you're blessed. It's two spheres. Okay, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. At conversion, you go from one sphere, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of what? The beloved son. So being in the Lord is a blessed state. And so notice here, the question that we, I think, really have to wrestle with in the red is when he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. The now on cues us into saying, well, what time period is John referring? And let me just read kind of address this issue. What time period is John referring to when he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on? Well, some people believe that it refers to the entire church age, that John is referring to every single believer that dies during the church age. Now, while I would affirm that every believer who dies is certainly blessed, that's not in question. I don't think that that's John's point in this text. Um, by the way, those who would hold to this view believe in what's called the historical approach to Revelation, where they see Revelation chapters 4 all the way to 22 as being something that occurs in church history rather than the 70th week of Daniel, as we've proven in earlier messages. So I don't think that that's what he's referring to. The second idea is some believe that it's the time period from John's writing onward. That is, John wrote this in 95 AD. Well, that's almost like the first point that it's the entire church age. Remember, the church began at Pentecost in 33 AD. That's not much of a difference. So to me, again, I don't think that that's what John, John is referring to. What I think 
John is referring to is the time period specific to the Great Tribulation. Why? Remember when we got to Revelation 12, all the way to the end of Revelation 14, we're in a section that gives us backdrop or background to the Great Tribulation. It's John's way of saying from Revelation 12 all the way to the end of Revelation 14, he's saying, by the way, these things are occurring too. These things are happening that you have to realize. So we're given kind of the inside scoop as to what's occurring during the last three and a half years, the Great Tribulation. In fact, let me just cite before I come to you, Brian, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 12, 17. This is the timing indicator as to when these things happen. Revelation 12, 17. Again, Revelation 12 goes all the way through Revelation 14. They should be interpreted together as a major pericope. Revelation 12, 17. Notice it's talking about the dragon, which is Satan. It says, so the dragon was enraged with the woman, Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, remember the rest of the children are other believers. The woman is Israel, and this happens within the last three and a half years. Satan is thrown down. He's expelled from the heavens. He knows his time is short. He wants to wipe out Israel to make God a liar, but God protects them in the wilderness. So what does he do in the last three and a half years? He turns his attention to the rest of God's children. And he forces them to take the mark of the beast. And if they won't take the mark of the beast, what happens? Right? You're dead. But the promise here in Revelation 14, 13 is it doesn't matter if you're killed. You're still blessed. And that's why Jesus, remember, said in John 10, 28, do not fear he who can destroy the body. But who should you fear? God or Jesus, right? He's God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so that's why this encouragement is therefore being given, okay? Now, the other thing I want to point out is, oh, I'm sorry, Brian, you had a comment. Uh, Jesus tells us later in Revelation there's a special blessing for the tribulation saints. Amen. That's right. And again, that's not to nullify that all people who believe in Jesus are blessed for all time. The idea, though, is there's such a contrast here because here is the worst time period ever. Remember, Jesus himself says that in the Olivet Discourse. There's never been a time of more unparalleled fury and wrath. In fact, he says, if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. And so it's especially relevant to those who are living during this period that they know that they're blessed, even though they're tormented from every side by the unregenerate, by Antichrist and his forces. They're really blessed. So absolutely. So we're not denying, and nor is John denying, that all Christians are blessed who die in the Lord. But he's specifically referring to those who die during this period because they need and they will need this encouragement. Okay, now, notice also after the red, notice where he says, yes, says the Spirit. That's important. Just think about an implication here. The Spirit is speaking. Why is that important? Well, that shows us the personality of the Spirit. This is a passage that could be appealed to to prove the personality of the third person of the Trinity. He's not just a force, he's a person. The passage that came to my mind as I read that was the 1 Timothy 4.1 where Paul says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times people would fall away from true doctrine and they would give themselves over to the doctrines of demons, right? So you see these passages where the Spirit explicitly says, 1 Timothy 4.1, here the Spirit speaks, there's personality to the Spirit third person now we're showing now what's interesting is notice we have two members of the trinity more than likely he heard a voice from heaven typically the voice from heaven is god the father now you have the spirit explicitly talking well there's two members of the trinity just like at jesus baptism you have the son you have the father saying this is my son with whom i'm well pleased and you have the spirit descending upon him in that instance you have all three members of the trinity that are being referred to Okay, so another very important implication. Now, notice there's a purpose statement given by the Spirit, the Spirit which gives us Scripture. He says, so that they may rest from their labors. Okay, so here there's a promise that those who die in the Lord are going to have rest. Those who died, remember in the previous section, the unregenerate, they don't have rest. They have God's wrath. But you and I who die because of our faith in Jesus... We're going to have rest. And what I would say is that this rest that's being referred to is Sabbath rest. True Sabbath rest, dear ones, is not found in the obedience to a certain day, but it's 
found by having faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, Lonnie, we got a question or a comment from Lonnie. I just have a question. You said uh, yes says the Spirit. You're saying that that's the Holy Spirit? Amen. Well, how, how, how do you know that that's the Holy Spirit rather than some uh, angelic spirit or I, I don't know? Yeah, yeah. Um, typically because in Revelation, if it was an angel, the term would be angelos, the term for angel. Okay. Um, the Spirit with the definite article typically is a reference to the third person of the Trinity. We see that all the way through the book of Revelation. So if John had intended to talk about an angelic spirit, yeah. he would have specifically used angelos or some term that we've already seen used of angels. But the reference to the Spirit, singular, um, is usually a reference to the third person of the Trinity. Does that make sense? Um, think about the messages to the seven churches. He who hears the Spirit, right, what the Spirit says, um, he gives that seven different times, right? So over and over, the definite article, the Spirit, is a reference to the third person of the Trinity. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, very good question. Now, oh, um, one thing I want to point out, too, before we move on to talk about this Sabbath rest that we have by having faith in Jesus, notice it says, for their deeds follow them. Remember, your deeds are always evidence of what? Your faith. You act on what you believe. I always use the Ephesians 28 through 10. Remember Ephesians 28 through 9, you're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, our deeds. So their deeds that follow them are evidence of what? Their saving faith. That's the idea. Now, let's talk about this messianic rest and having true Sabbath rest. Do you know that this is a controversial issue in the church today, and it always has been since the inception of the church, unfortunately, and it shouldn't be. I think the Bible is very clear that having true rest is found through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But let me give you different views that other Christians hold to. There's four that I'm going to give you. Number one, some believe that Sabbath rest is found on Saturday and that you must have a Saturday Sabbath rest and it must be still observed. Who would hold to such an idea? Well, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Messianic congregations. In my opinion, this is heresy. This is holding on to elements of the Mosaic Covenant and is a compromise of Christ, okay? Now, the second view is the reform view, that Sabbath turns from Saturday to Sunday and it must still be observed. Now, what's foolhardy about that is 62 times in our New Testament, the term Sabbath is used. Bob pointed this out. It's actually 68 references in 62 verses. Sabbath in the New Testament always means what? Saturday unless it's being referred to as Sabbath rest that you have in Jesus Christ. So here's my point. Anytime you see Sabbath referring to a day, it's always Saturday. Okay? Now, the Lord's Day, when the early church began assembling, which is on Sunday to commemorate the resurrection, that's never referred to as a Sabbath. Okay? Now, that's the Reformed view. Let me show you a Lutheran view. Now, not all Lutherans hold to this, but they would say that Sabbath rest must still be observed, but you can choose any day you want. Does that make sense? But here's the view that we hold to here at Gospel of Grace. That is, Sabbath rest isn't found in the observance of a day, but it's found through faith in Christ. Okay, let's ask the question that we just looked at in Revelation 14, 13. Did the saints in Revelation 14, 13 have rest because they observed a certain day or because they had faith in Jesus and they died in that state? Which is it? It's the latter, isn't it? Now, I want to show you further evidence that this is indeed the case. Let me show you Colossians 2.16. Bob and I have recently done radio on this a few weeks ago, right, Bob? Colossians 2.16. We have the Net Bible here. I think it's the most accurate. Colossians 2.16, Paul says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come. But the reality is Christ. Now, why is Paul giving this admonition? Bob and I have been doing radio on this. Here's the issue at Colossae. You had Christians who began by faith in Christ, and they said, great, we have salvation. But then they believed that there were demonic forces who controlled their fate. In other words, if you wanted to make sure your kids had a great education, they never got sick, that your family had a bumper crop, Jesus really wasn't sufficient 
What you had to do is appeal to these religious practices and to the angels for protection against the wicked angels, the demonic. So they did all of these extra biblical practices. Some of them would include abstaining from certain types of food, abstaining from certain types of drink, honoring one day above another. Well, Paul takes issue with that. Do you honestly think, think of it this way. If you are saved from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ, think about what Jesus did for you. The moment you believed in him, he gives you his righteousness that you're clothed in. And he removed your sins, he propitiated God. So that his death on the cross is considered payment in full. Can you imagine saying to God that, well, that's all fine and good, but you know that I didn't drink of this? I know Jesus, he lived this perfect life, and the one who lived in glory from all eternity came and humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2, and that he atoned for my sins once and for all, but I didn't drink of this, or I observed this day. How foolish is that? And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Therefore, if you let people say, you're not a really good Christian, you're not really safe unless you do this, Paul's saying, no, no, no. Once you go there, you've departed from the sufficiency of Christ and you're standing under works. And so he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge. There's a command. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. We have to obey this. We are not to let anyone judge you with what? Respect to food or drink. Doesn't matter what you drink or eat. All foods are clean, Mark 7, Jesus declared. Or in the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. Now, with the Sabbath days, here's what I would say. The Sabbath days can be here more than just the weekly Sabbath Saturday, but they're not less than that. Are you with me? In other words, there are seven different Sabbaths outside of the Sabbath on Saturday that the Jews had to honor. There was a Sabbath rest that you had to have on the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, number one. You had to have a Sabbath rest at Pentecost. You had to have a Sabbath rest on the first day of the seventh month, the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, on the fifteenth day, the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, and on the last day of Tabernacles, actually the day after, the 22nd of the tenth day. Actually, I missed one. Oh, there was also a Sabbath rest on the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? So here's my point. There are Sabbath rests associated with the feasts. Are you with me? So what some people try to claim, hit my pointer up here again. Oh, I lost it. They try to claim that these Sabbath days are really just associated with the festivals, the feasts. And therefore, we're still bound to holding a weekly Sabbath. Are you with me? Now, here's one of the problems with that view. Notice Paul uses an or. It's a disjunctive. He says, you, he's, oh, let me just read it again. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of feast or, there's literally or, new moon, or Sabbath days. The or, the disjunctive shows that there's a distinction between one or the other. Are you with me? If Paul wanted you to think that the new moon festivals and the feasts are synonymous with the Sabbath days, he could have used what's called an exegetical chi. What is that? It's an and. Okay, let me show you how this works. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1.1. Ephesians 1.1. Let me show you what Paul could have done. Ephesians 1.1. In fact, let's get really split or thin to win here. Ephesians 1.1b. Okay, because I couldn't fit any more on my note screen without becoming cumbersome. Ephesians 1.1b. Does everyone see where Paul says, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and I don't know what your version says, but notice a lot of the versions, I think this is the NASB, says, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. The and there is chi in Greek. Now, let me just throw out this for you. Do you think that the saints who are at Ephesus are different than those who are faithful in Christ Jesus? No, because then you'd have two different groups. The way Paul is using the and is what's called an epexegetical way. It's, the way to render it is namely. In other words, read it this way, Ephesians 1, 1b, to the saints who are at Ephesus, namely the faithful in Christ Jesus. Are you with me? Yes. Paul uses and often that way. Now, he could have used that here. 
to show us, yes, the feast, new moon festivals, namely Sabbath days, to show us that these Sabbath days are merely associated with the feast, but he uses a disjunctive or, showing us that, yes, the Sabbath days aren't merely the Sabbath rest associated with the feast, but they are also the Sabbath days associated with Saturday. It's Sabbath days of all kinds. Let no one judge you with respect to them. Yes, Eric. Well, I was going to read one other passage just real quick here because I yeah. think it says something along the, this matter. Uh, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Uh, one person believes he may eat anything while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats not despise the one who abstains, and uh, let the one who abstains, uh, let's see, and let not the one who <laughs> abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God welcomed him. Were you to pass judgment on the servant of another, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, uh, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You're in Romans 14. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then it goes on to one, just a little bit here. Uh, one person esteems one day better than another, while uh, another esteems all days alike. Each one exactly. should be fully convicted, convinced in his own mind. Exactly. Um, and it goes on to say that's, that's actually you know permissible. But, you know, I, I actually know someone that, you know, like, like Sabbath day, is absolutely convinced that, you know, he's, that, it's, that he needs to follow Sabbath day. And I, and I was trying to tell him, you know, so you, you can't be saying that you go to heaven. And he's like, no, no, I know I'm saved only by faith. But he still, he can't wrap his mind around that Christ is our Sabbath rest. And I've just been, you know, back and forth. And, and you know, it's not, it's not a good thing, that, but it's, it's permissible, it says here. Because exactly. You know, he's not counting on that to go to heaven. But on exactly. the other... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're exactly right. So everyone think about what Eric just said. You're exactly right, Eric. One man views one day above another. Another man views every day alike. Each must be convinced in his own mind. So there's, there's liberty when it comes to observance of a certain day. So if someone wants to hold to a certain day to set aside, I can't say that's it, you're going to hell because of that. However... When they say, and they make the statement, thus saith the Lord, or they believe that it's binding in order to be right with God, now they've added something to the gospel. So certainly we have the freedom to have a day above another, but once we say that that's binding for salvation, that's where the issue comes in. That's exactly what the Seventh-day Adventists claim, that unless you hold to a Saturday Sabbath, you are sinning against the Lord. What you're rightly pointing them to is that no true Sabbath rest under the new covenant is found in Jesus Christ. Spot on, Eric. Well said. In fact, let me just add on to what you're saying. Notice here in Colossians 2.16, Paul, excuse me, verse 17, actually. Well, I don't know why I didn't put up verses 16 through 17. Minor slip, I guess. But verse 17, notice it says, these are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. So what's the shadow, the things that belong to the old covenant? the feasts, the new moon festivals, the Sabbath days. Let me ask you this. If you went to a car dealership and you love this, I, I hate to, let's just use a Ferrari. Let's take a really nice car. You see this, this Ferrari, it's just beautiful. You know, lots of money. And you put your money down. You said, that's it. I've been saving all my life for a Ferrari. You put the money right on the barrel. And that rascal dealership, when you come to pick it up, they say, well, here, here's the shadow. You don't actually get the car you get the shadow that the car makes. Well, would anybody tolerate that? I think not. Why would we do that with the greatest prize ever? Salvation and Sabbath rest that we have in Christ. If we go to anything outside of Jesus Christ, we're like the person who's willing to say, here's a hundred grand for the Ferrari. I'll take the shadow. You don't have to give me the car. That's what we're doing. What Paul is saying is that all of these things pointed to Christ. If you want true Sabbath rest, it's found in faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Now, we don't have time to get into Hebrews. Next time we get into uh, our Sunday school, my rotation, we'll unpack Hebrews chapter 4, and Bob is going to unpack Matthew 11 and 12 when Jesus says, All you who are heavy laden and burdened and weary, come to me, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Amen. True Sabbath rest is found in Jesus Christ. Those who reject Christ will never have rest. They have the wrath of God. But those who come to Christ, no matter when they die, they have true Sabbath rest. They have rest the moment they trusted in him. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have true Sabbath rest found in your Son, that in him we have freedom. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here that we would not be tempted to go back to the things that are a shadow, but that we would realize that all of these shadows pointed to the reality that we have in Christ, that none of us would be so foolish as to depart from the sufficiency that we have in him, and that we would persevere realizing that no matter what happens to us in this world, in Jesus Christ, because of our faith in him, we're blessed. And in, Lord, reinforce to my brothers and sisters that we can never lose this blessed status, and that you'll keep us all the way through eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.